Well, we've been in the Gospel of John for the last little while, immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus, so that as we come up to this Holy Week, we know something of who He is, something of of what He's like, and, and the motivation, which was His love, a love for you, a love for me, a love that knows no measure, knows no limits, a love that never gives up. And today is Palm Sunday. I was trying to give away palms, and I was a little disappointed in how many people said, no, I'm sorry, I don't do palms. Thank you very much. I'm here to convince you otherwise. Palm Sunday is one of my favorite parts of the Easter story. We are a people of faith. We don't always understand or operate by what we see. We, we walk in a trust. We walk in a confidence that God is who he says he is and that he's able to do all that he says he can do. And, and we are a people that have a reason, have a purpose for our existence. We were created to interact with God. And to, we were created to respond to his incredible love that is expressed in so many ways to us each and every day. You were made, I was made to respond to God. We're in John chapter 12. You have your Bibles and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 12. I love that John includes the tension, the the. The, the, the pull and push of what's going on in the story, some of the emotion that surrounds the story. It's the day before the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and there was a dinner thrown in the honor of Jesus. It was, it was hosted, it was sponsored by the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You remember that Jesus had returned home from a, a missions trip and had come home and found out that his dear friend, Lazarus, had died. And the family is broken, and Jesus said, don't, don't worry about it. I, I, it's all under control. And, and they say, he, he's dead. We'll, we'll see him in the suite by and by. And Jesus said, no, hold on. He goes to the tomb and he speaks to death and he speaks to his friend Lazarus to come forward and, and Lazarus is brought back from the dead and the family responds by having a, a dinner in honor of Jesus and with gratitude for all that's taken place. It's at that dinner that, that Mary comes in unannounced, and she takes that expense of that priceless perfume and breaks it over the feet of Jesus and anoints him and, and washes his feet with her hair. And that, that starts a bit of a discussion on a Saturday night. Judas is one is the one to vocalize his objective, he, uh, his objection. He, he, he stands up and, and, and he says, this is a colossal waste of money. Why wouldn't she give the money to the poor? There's at least a year's worth of, of salary spilled out here on the floor. And, and do you know how many people could have been fed by that much money? But John puts in a helpful editorial comment to the story and says, Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
There are all sorts of things that are happening in the story, and that's why we've been in the book of John. And there's all things, all sorts of things that are happening that are that are happening that only Jesus is aware of at the time and and where people are at with him and what's in their hearts. And this is all happening around a table of, cel- uh, of celebration and, and honor. And, and meanwhile, there's a crowd outside that are, are gathering. And, and some are there to see Lazarus because they've heard that he died and now is alive. But not everybody that's gathered outside is happy. John records, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there at Lazarus's home and, and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus from whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus, for on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Again, tension and, and trouble and difficulty and misunderstanding. And, and, and this is such an important part of the story. We, we're a people that were made to respond. And, and, and that response has not always been pure, has not always been God-honoring. The people in power, the people charged with keeping watch over the spiritual life and tenor of the nation, uh, they, they had decided that Jesus had to be eliminated. He had to be put to death. And, 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 and the hatred and the jealousy and the fear had made them mean and, and made them very dangerous. Now, it wasn't just Jesus who was the target of the plot. The, the authoritative teacher, the one credited with all sorts of miracles and now renowned for raising the dead back to life. Lazarus was, was the proof, and so he had to be eliminated as well. And, and, and before the crowd, before that crowd followed Jesus, got any bigger, before the, the converts of the message to Jesus became any stronger, they, they would respond out of hate and they would kill them both. That was the determination. Now that was Saturday. And now our story brings us to Sunday, the next day. Verse 12, John chapter 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city And a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. And and they shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. The reputation of Jesus, his teaching, his his miracles, had created a, a curiosity in the country. People who had, had, had witnessed the words and the works of Jesus in their own hometowns as he had passed through, as, as he had spoken there, were excited to see him again, wanted to see what was new, what was happening. And people who had never had an encounter with Jesus, never had seen him but had heard of him, were, were looking forward to the experience. It, It wasn't a surprise that when word got out that he was on his way to the city, that people would go to the gates to to see who he was, see what he was like. However, it was more than just curiosity. The, The mood, 
the, the response of the crowd is a surprise. It, it was not just curiosity, there was an enthusiasm, and that enthusiasm was wild. It was wild. Excitement that was overwhelming. It was, it was not something that had been planned by a, a, a committee or announced as something of a, a victory lap before the king came to his throne. The, the crowd numbered in the tens of thousands. And, and the reaction and its meaning was not lost on observers. There were palm branches as, as men climbed up the trees and started right, ripping the fronds off the, off the trees and, and people started waving them excitedly as, as, as they would a banner or as they would a, a conquering army coming home. They would welcome the, the military after victory. And not only was there this excitement, but there was a, a chant that rose like a song over the crowd. And, and it was clear. They, they started to sing Hosanna, the, the word that says, save us. Hosanna, save us. Praise God. He has sent someone to save us now. There was a quote that started to be sung and it came out of Psalm 118, verse 25. Here is the sent one, the, the Messiah sent by God. Here is our king. Here is our rescue. We are unrestrained in our excitement because that which we have longed for, that which we've pro, pr prayed for has arrived. Behold, here is the king of Israel. Again, this wasn't a planned event. This wasn't a, an advertised arrival. There were no leaflets. There were no organizers selling banners or bullhorns on the street corners. It's, it's spontaneous. It's exuberant. And it's wildly enthusiastic. A response by the common person in the street. Luke, Luke takes time to let us know that not everyone felt excited. Not everyone was thrilled by what was taking place. The, the religious leadership were, were shocked by, by how the movement had grown seemingly overnight. They, they were worried about what the Romans would say about the population shouting that Israel has a king. They, they were angry that, that the situation had grown out of their control. They were, they were wishing that they had acted on their plans to have had Jesus assassinated and that that might have been carried out before it had gotten out of hand. And the plan was to go to the man himself, to, to confront him in the very parade that's, being, that's taking place in front of them and confront him and ask him to, to shut the celebration down. 
These words of adoration, these political phrases are not going to be viewed well by the Romans. You have the authority, and yes, you have the responsibility to shut it down. Quiet them, rebuke them, make them stop saying what they're saying. Make them stop calling you the king that's been sent by God. They don't understand the political climate of the time and the repercussions of what's going to to happen if if. Rome gets a hold of this. Shut it down. And and Jesus responds and he says to them, you don't know that they were made, they were created for this moment. You you don't understand they were made to respond to God and to what he's doing in this moment. This is a God-created, this is a God-ordained and approved event. If for some reason there was no one here, if there was no one doing what they're doing at this moment, then God himself would cause the stones to come alive, the stones along the sides of the road to burst forth with cheers and songs of adoration. They were made for this. And if they refused, then God would have a supernatural response. There has to be a response. Think about that. A moment made for celebration, created for declaration and announcement, announcing the plans, announcing the purposes of God spontaneously a crowd is gathered who are waving branches and making an impromptu red carpet out of their coats as as a welcome and as an announcement of God having sent his Messiah to the city of the great king. People declaring an old song from the hymn book of David as a prophetic declaration of the present reality. Here is the king sent to us by God. Are you ever surprised by the response that you have to certain stimuli? You're all looking at me like, no, I, you, you must be daft. I never have anything, you know. Let, let me make a couple of confessions here. I like music. I like all sorts of music. I'm not crazy about some of the twangy, country, western, nasal kind of stuff. But I was in a store a couple of weeks ago, and that very kind of music was on. Not my brand, but you know, there was a good, a good bass line and, 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 and decent drumming, and And I realized that while I was more interested and focused on how slow this line was moving ahead of me and how many other things I had to do before I could escape this shopping nightmare, a a different part of my brain was processing what it was hearing. And so here I am watching and looking and counting how many people before it's my turn to pay. And I look down and my foot's tapping to the beat. I'm responding to music that I wouldn't choose if it were my house to listen to. I was created to respond. I'm not a big sports buff, and I don't keep up with stats or the players or the commentary during the regular season. I, I might listen to the news to see if the team won or lost last night, but... But that's pretty much the extent of my commitment to the team. 
However, I respond differently during the playoffs. There's a possibility that our team could go all the way and we could show those smug cities that have so much to say about our sports team that we now the what it is to be a city of champions. Inexplicably, in this shorter season, I'm, I'm connected to, I'm paying attention to, I'm responding to the hopes and the dreams of the flames. I'm responding to wins and to losses. There are events, there are occasions that, that pull reaction out of us. Even though I've conducted hundreds of, of weddings, I still find myself getting emotional at ceremonies. I get a bit of a nationalistic lump in my throat on, on Canada Day when they're playing the anthem or when the Silver Cross mother on November 11th sets the wreath in front of the cenotaph. I've been known to become pretty teary when someone sends me a YouTube video of a kid who has a parent who's away serving in the armed forces and suddenly that parent shows up for that child unexpectedly. I respond to that. I cry like a baby. We were made to respond. We were made to respond to stimuli of, of various types, but in this verse, Jesus tells us that we were created to respond to spiritual stimuli, that God has ordained response, that if there is no response, then God could, God would cause nature to respond in some pretty unbelievable ways. Trees that clap their hands, so, stones that can sing out. The, the stimuli is so significant, so important, that there has to be a response. You were created for response. Planted into your spiritual DNA is a mechanism that says that when you feel God, when you see God at work, when you understand that what is going on in front of you is more than a coincidence, that it's God at work, then you need to respond. You need to do something. You can't just stand there in silence. There has to come a response. You see, the closer we are associated with, the closer and more in sync we are with Jesus, the more that our spirit responds to his presence, to his plan, to the process that he's leading us through. The, the, the way that we interact with God should always be marked by response. There, there, there will be moments in a service like this one that I recognize God at work and, and the truth of, of that, that, that God being who he is cares so much about us as his people that, that no matter how busy he is, he deigns to show up at the corner of Marbank Drive in 36 to, to touch my heart, touch your heart, to, to stir the waters. That's overwhelming to me. That's amazing to me. 
There, there are times when I'm studying and I'm preparing for a Sunday service and immediately something that I've read becomes new in my understanding. Something that I believed in and, and understood for decades becomes new and relevant to me right now. It's like God sitting right across the table from me and saying something and it's exactly what I needed to hear. And there's emotion, and sometimes there's lifting up of my hands, and, and sometimes there's raising my voice in praise. There's a sincere and powerful response that's birthed in me in response to God for what he's doing in my life. And it's usually a prolonged response. It's usually an excitement. I can't wait to get here on Sunday morning to share with you. I, I've got this this vibrating inside of me and I want it to vibrate inside of you. There, there are two things that I know about response. The first is that our response has, has a power to it. When we respond, things both seen and unseen happen. I can be working really hard in a, in a Sunday morning service to make a point clear, make a truth known, and it, and it seems like I'm not getting any traction. There's, there's no evidence of effectiveness in, in what's going on, and, and yet there's, there's a spark, a small but significant truth that comes out, and there's a reaction, and together it creates a fire, and we have a breakthrough of understanding, and people, oh, yeah, now I get it. I've seen that happen. The second thing that I know about response is that there is always a multi-pronged attempt to quell, to quiet, to eliminate the response that we were created to have. Always. Always. On that Palm Sunday, it was the religious leadership that decided that the people had to be quieted down and had to be silenced. And Jesus said, that's not possible. Because if they are quiet, then rocks are going to sing out. In, in, in our day, in, in our culture, we're trained, we're educated to fit in. To look like all the other clones. We're, we're trained to keep silent, to not respond. From, from the time that you're born throughout your life, there are, are many attempts to make you a non-responder. Things are said, examples that are lived out in front of us. Apathy comes, weariness settles in that keep us, keeps us unable to focus on what's going on. There's wounding that takes place. There's bitterness. There's disappointment. Anything and everything that can be done to keep you from responding to the presence of God, to the plan in a, of God in action, to the process of God. It's being fired at you all the time. Let me give you an example. This happens, has happened many times in this house. But God will say to me in a Sunday morning service, in your worship, I, I want you to, to listen for a voice. And so in worship, I'm, I'm worshiping, but I'm singing a little quieter than usual because I'm also listening. I'm I'm, I'm listening for the voice that God told me to hear. 
and I hear it. It's a lovely voice. It's a quiet voice. It's, uh, it, it, it's a voice that's almost buried in the roar of the cloud, crowd. And, I, and I'll turn to the person, and I'll wait till I have their attention, and I'll say to them this thing. God loves your voice. No, I, I'm serious. God loves your voice. He, he told me to listen for you this morning, and I heard it, and, I, and I'm supposed to tell you that God loves hearing your voice. And usually the statement is met with shock, and then shortly thereafter there are tears. I will ask for the story, and, and usually it comes out this way. At some point in time, they will say that someone, a friend, a teacher, a parent, told them that they couldn't sing. And so they stopped singing. They stopped responding. They got quiet. They got invisible. They became a spectator instead of a person created by God to respond to the love of God that never gives up. And when they hear that God loves their voice, something is broken. Something is unleashed, and then that voice becomes clearer and louder and more beautiful because we were created to respond. Sometimes worship leaders... Or preachers attempt to prompt you, to wake you up to your call as a responder. I admit we don't always do it well, or in a way that you find helpful, but we're looking for a prompt. We're looking for some way to encourage you to fulfill your call as a person who responds to the power and the presence of God. I, I could go anywhere in Genesis all the way through to Revelation to point out cues that are, are placed by God in the Word that say, be prepared to respond to God. I've picked out a few, and I could have picked out many, many more, but Paul is writing to the young and inexperienced pastor Timothy. And he says, I want you to train your people so that they are responders. That when they come to worship, it's, it's good, it's right for them to lift up their hands to God. Lift them up as an invitation. Come, we're, we're longing for, them, for you. Lift up your hands in, in surrender. God, whatever you want to do, I'm here. I'm, I, I'm positioned for you to do whatever it is you want me to do. Remember to teach them what David says about clean hands and a pure heart, don't come in to worship unprepared with a polluted heart or innocent blood dripping off your fingers, but come in prepared and wanting to respond to God by lifting up your hands. I, I can't tell you why exactly that helps or, or what that changes, but when I respond in obedience to the word, when my response is, is coming out like this that always triggers a response from God. I, I hear God more clearly. I, 
I understand something of what's going on in, my, in both my heart and my head, even before I understood anything else. There, there are times that I arrive at a Sunday morning service and I don't feel like responding. I'm thinking of times when I'm running lists through my head who's here and who's not. How come Pastor Cheryl and Dan get to be in Mexico on the beach this morning and I can't? Wish it was me and not them. I, I, I feel sometimes like standing back and just seeing what's going on with you and just allowing my state of mind to dictate my reaction and my response. However, I've trained myself. I've disciplined myself. I've learned this. I don't go by what I feel. I don't become a prisoner to my circumstance. I've come to the house of worship, and so I will enter in. No matter the status of my heart and mind, I will worship. I understand that as I do, something will happen to me. Something will happen in the atmosphere of this house. And that anything could happen. Anything could happen. God, God responds to faith. And, and my response is part of faith being exercised. Every worship place, Paul says to Timothy, filled with people who are unafraid and unashamed to lift up their hearts, lift up their hands, lift up their voices to God because we were a people who were created to respond. One of my favorite old songs is found in Psalm 24. It's a beautiful song, and, and, and the focus of the song is that the king of glory, the king of power, is coming to his people, and the king who is strong, who is mighty, who is invincible in battle, get ready. He's on his way to where you are. He's on his way. He's coming to you in all of his power, in all of his glory. He's going to do amazing things. But the song also cues us to respond, to make us ready for the arrival of this amazing king. Where is he headed? He's coming towards you. But before he gets there, there, there are gates that are shut. There are doors that are closed. But the word he's coming here is a, is a cue. Get up, get going, move so that the, the gates are open and the doors are swung as wide as they can be. So that he, he can come in, he can get his close without any obstacles. Get those old ancient doors swung open to their widest opening so that nothing hinders his arrival. Only to discover that I am those old doors. I am those gates. Paul says, enter those gates with thanksgiving in your heart. Just, just as you're coming to church on Sundays, you're coming to prayer on Tuesdays, you're going to work, just discipline yourself. Start to give thanks for everything that God's doing in your life. Open those gates. 
Come into his presence with praise. Respond, respond, respond. You were created for response. You were tasked to be architectural, uh, atmospheric architects to create an atmosphere so warm, so welcoming that when the king arrives, he is so warmly welcomed that anything can happen. Anything can happen. That's in my head. I don't know why. Understand my passion this morning. Understand my path. You know, I've been sick in bed all week and I've missed people. At home, all my people have been treating me like I'm a leper. I have to go down the road saying, unclean, unclean, move aside. I'm just glad to be with people. Understand my passion with this and make room in your heart for my passion. But, but I think, I, I plan, I, I pray, I ask God for ways to make this house the place that most warmly welcomes him so that he can come and do what he wants to do so that the people who come looking for something more than they know will find Jesus, find a love that never gives up on them. We have worship leaders and, and singers and musicians who don't just arrive on the platform at you know 10 to 10 and say, well, what are we going to sing? this morning they've been praying they've been planning they've been asking God they've been looking for for things that that speak to where we're where we are and where we're going they 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 are here they've prayed and practiced and are prepared to create an atmosphere of welcome and expectancy so you can imagine How stunned a person who's been in that atmosphere, who's been in that preparation, can can be when they stand to lead us into a supernatural encounter with Jesus, having done all they know how to do, and they meet up with skepticism. Or apathy. Or people who are disengaged. Or distracted. (laughs) Know that I'm not mad at that reality. I, I understand that there is a push. There's a constant push against us all the time. There's a war on your voice, a war on your response. I I also know that if, if you would step up to your call that comes from God to respond, then something would happen in you. If you stood up and responded, something deeper and better would happen in this room. You need to know that I stand here in the front looking forward, responding personally to God, because if I saw what was going on behind me, I might rush over to you and give you an Oprah hug. Do you you know what an Oprah hug is? She's not a hugger. Debbie, just stand up and pretend you're coming to to hug me. Oprah just takes their hands and goes like this, you know? (laughs) That's an Oprah hug. And I'm tempted every once in a while. Oh, I see some people who need some Oprah hugs. I would rush to your side. I would beg you to respond and experience God in a way that's beyond intellect alone. I'm thrilled for my brain. I I try to use it every day. It's, It's helpful most of the time. 
But God also created me with a full range of emotions. One of the great miracles in my life was when, when, when God healed my brain of its cynicism and connected my brain to my heart so that I could respond both intellectually and emotionally to God. I was a terrible cynic. Let's move on. Let's provoke, let us think of ways to to motivate, to provoke one another to acts of love and good works. One of the calls on my life is to motivate or provoke you as as a people to respond, to stretch, to be more than you think you could be. To provoke you to acts of love that you didn't think you were capable of. And and to motivate you to join together to do things that most people would see and believe as impossible. The newer versions use motivate. The older versions use provoke. I I think of provoke. My my dad used to have some cattle and, and I got to use the prod, the electric prod. And I just think of provoke with a prod in my hand. Let's think of ways we can prod one another to to respond. One of the ways that I, I do that this year is to ask you to have a person. To love, to serve, to encourage, to help a person in your sphere of influence, to believe that God has put you in a place of making a a difference in that person's life, to provoke you to love beyond limit and to serve beyond expectation in, in the hope that your person will discover the love that never gives up on him. That's why I'm asking you to invite your, your person to, to Friday or to Sunday or to both. I'm called to motivate, to provoke you, to step up to your call as a responder. I I do the best I can. Every once in a while I hear something that I do is annoying. and, And I listen to that and I go back to God and I say, Okay, then Father, help me discover a better way to provoke them. I, I, I know the significance of of offering up and responding with sacrifice of praise, but I want my people to know the joy of responding as well. David again, provoking both you and me to be people who, who respond to God. Psalm 107. So adopt an attitude of thanksgiving. This will not, cannot lead you astray because the Lord is good and does nothing but good for, his, for us. His love never gives up. He is faithful to the end and his mercy endures forever. If, if God has done something for you, then, then verse 2 says, then you have to respond. You you have to speak out about the goodness of God in your life. You you must tell others that he has redeemed you from your enemies. If you've been rescued from a train wreck of a life, then you have to give the good news to everyone that you know who might be in a train wreck. It's the only responsible thing to do. There's hope, my friend. There's help. You need to know God is good, that he loves you. You 
me, we were created to respond. Keep that in mind that, that I could go to any book in the Bible and find a place, find an invitation, find a declaration that either states that we are to respond or here is what is said, what is happening, who God is. Then the natural thing is for us to explode in enthusiastic response. If you don't, then God can make the rocks on the tomb cry out. I, I know that many of you were raised spiritually in atmospheres and traditions that did not teach, did not understand the calling to be a responder to the power of God. Please don't be ashamed of that. Be thankful for what you have and what you were given. I, I understand all of that. My, my parents raised me in the church. They loved the church. They, they supported the church, but neither one of them instructed or showed me by example how to be a responder. Debbie was raised in a very quiet, wonderful, biblical background. You were allowed during the song service to sing with great gusto, but don't encourage the preacher. Don't lift your hands. Don't show emotion. Don't pray out loud in public when somebody else is praying. We had just started dating, and she had invited me to her home church for a conference. And she was a little nervous about taking a Pentecostal to this very quiet, reserved background. And you know me, I like to make Debbie as comfortable as I can. And so I went to the house and I rang the doorbell and she opened the door. And I was standing like this and she said, what are you doing? I said, I can't get him down. Do you remember that? She does unfortunately remember that. We'd only been married just a few months and... We'd been here at a prayer meeting on a Sunday night and we'd gone home and we were on a walk and she told me that she wished that I could make the people in this church pray quietly during a service because she found the noise of our prayer meetings chaotic and difficult to focus on what she was doing when she was praying. So we both understand that kind of background. But we're responders now. God has taught us. God has showed us. We, when, when, when we show up, no matter how we feel, our, our job is A, to encourage those who are leading worship. No matter what the rest of you are doing, we're, the, the hottest worshipers are going to be sitting right here because we're, you know, we do that. But also we just want to create an atmosphere of welcome. So that he can come and he can do whatever he wants to do. He's warmly welcomed here. Jesus is traveling one day. And he comes across a community of lepers. When, when you're diagnosed with that illness, you were expected immediately to vacate your house and, and move out of your community because you were contagious and you must live apart from everything that was familiar to you to prevent the people that you love from becoming sick with the same horrible disease that you'd contracted. And so the disease was bad enough, 
But the collateral damage of of the social alienation was even worse. You were isolated. So you had to go out. You had to find other people who were afflicted with the the same disease as you had. and, And they would become your family. They would become your community. And so one day Jesus is traveling in Luke chapter 17, and he's traveling and he comes across 10 of these individuals who, who have this disease, and, and they're not, they know they're not even allowed to get close to Jesus. And so from a distance, they call out, Jesus, have mercy on us. We intervene, do something. We need something. We've heard of who you are. We've heard that you do amazing things. Intervene, do something for us. It's a cry of faith. It's a cry of hope. There's an expectation that's tied to it. It's a response to what they've heard about him. And, and Jesus says, I, I like your faith. I, and I'm telling you, head into town and find the priest and have him declare that you're healed. The only way you could be reunited with your family is having been examined by a priest who says that you're no longer a prisoner to the disease. You can return home because you're not contagious. There's an important point here. The the verse tells us that nothing had changed in their condition at that moment. When he said, listen, I want you just to take me at my word. I want you to turn around and I want you to go find a priest. They still had the disease. They still had the leprosy. There was no physical evidence that they were healed or changed. And so... They were lepers, and we walk by faith, not by what we see or understand, but with a confidence that God does amazing things beyond our understanding or ability. And so as they're on their way to the priest, something happens. They they look down, and they recognize that the disease is gone. The skin that had been eaten away, the the bone that had been exposed is now all covered over with brand new, beautiful, healthy skin. And there were options in front of them. There are decisions to be made. They, they want to go home. They want to hug family. They want to eat with their friends. They want to get the approval of the priest so that they can get back to what used to be normal. And, and so they're excited and they're overcome by emotion and they're attempting to guess at what should happen next. And, and that's where we pick up the story. One of the ten, only one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed turned on his heels and ran back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Two things about the man. One is he's a Samaritan and not a, not a member of the household of Israel. He, he wasn't supposed to know what to do. He was on the outside looking in, not on the inside. And the second thing, he he was the only one of ten who said, so much to do, so many things to catch up on, but I have to respond to the kindness and and the power that was extended to me. And he wasn't stiff upper lip responding in a Canadian way where he shyly goes up and shakes Jesus' head. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you've done for me. He is enthused. He's crying. He's he's shouting, praise God. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. He grabs his feet and he says unapologetically, thank you. I love you. Thank you for what you've done. But, But it's the next part that's so important and is why I want you to be, why I want our church to step into our created purpose. To be responsible. <clears throat> Pardon me. 
to be responders, to be a people who respond to the presence and the power and purpose of God. Jesus looks at this man and, and says to the others, didn't I heal ten men? Where, where are the other nine? Has no one returned except this foreigner who's not even supposed to know what's going on, but he does, and he comes back. Where, where are the other nine? And then Jesus says to the man, stand up, go. Your faith has healed you. Now, the older translation says, your, your faith has made you whole. You were healed of leprosy, but there's more. Something more has been added. You, you've been made whole. I'm, I'm a bit surprised by only a 10% return on the group who had experienced a miracle, but, and that the man is a, is a foreigner, but, but I want to give you something extra. Ben, can you come and can we, can we just be playing, and, and worship team come, because we, we want to just sing that last song we sang just before I preached. Every one of the ten are now free from this disease, but because you have responded, I want to add something. It doesn't say what was added, just that there was more given because he responded. I think about that quite often, and I like to think that not only was the disease gone, but the PTSD that came with the trauma of the sickness is lifted. I, I like to think that the problem of an absent father who's been away for who knows how long from his home, the transition back into the house is made easier because he was made whole. I, I, I like to think that the lost wages are restored. The parts that were missing before are restored. He's responded and he got more than the other nine. I want you to step into the creative call of your life as a responder. I, I want you to step away from your background, from your tradition, from saying, well, you know, Pastor Bill, I'm not as gregarious as you are. I'm just a shy kind of person who doesn't really you know what probably the shyest person I know is sitting on the front row but in the response of her heart to the things that God has done she's become an amazing worshiper an incredible prayer person she stepped out of her shyness and pastors with authority. All of that, I believe, is the fruit of her responding. It's almost 34 years, 35 years ago that I showed up <clears throat> at her parents' house and asked if they would give me their blessing to marry the daughter. And her dad, who's a lovely man and loves her, deeply said you know of our three daughters we're, we're not absolutely convinced that she's the one who should go into ministry she's so shy but she's been a responder so this morning 
I wanted to preach first and then give you these because I think it would have been easier to get rid of some of them. Debbie, would you like a palm frond now? She was one of the persons who didn't want one before. And Something happens when we respond. I can't explain it. It makes no sense to the, to the physical mind. But when we lift up our hands, when we lift up our voice, when we, when we declare the goodness and faithfulness of God, something happens. Please stand.